Revelation chapter 10, starting in verse 1. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, and he called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded. Skipping just a little bit, verse five. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea is what is in it, that there would be no more delay, but at the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled, just as he announced to his servants the prophets. Let's pause there. This is Daniel 12. Some of the language and the imagery that's being used in this little chunk that we just read is an explicit reference to a prophecy made uh, many, many centuries prior to this moment by another prophet named Daniel. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Daniel chapter 12, verses six through nine. See if you can catch some of the, the, the parallelism. And someone said to the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the stream, how long shall it be till the end of these wonders? And I heard the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the stream. He raised his right hand and his left hand toward heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time times and half a time and that when the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end, all these things would be finished. I heard, but I did not understand. That's encouraging. I heard, but I'm like, what on earth are we talking about? Why is this important? Okay, so what we're reading now in chapter 10 of Revelation is actually the fulfillment of another ancient prophecy made when Daniel smoked once upon a time. And I don't think this is even like one of these super controversial things that like, you know, revelation commentators debate about. I mean, the, the language used here is, is quite obvious. This is John using some of the words used in Daniel 12 to, to connect dots for us. This is one of those hyperlinks that we've talked about. Daniel 12, this, this is it, no more delays. The moment God's people have been waiting for has finally come. What John is wanting us to see that this prophecy that Daniel made a long time ago about something that would come at the end, the thing that God's people had been waiting for and wondering about for the ages, that is the mystery of God, the Christ, God in us, the hope of glory who was to come and rescue his people, that has now finally come. That promise that Daniel talked about is now being fulfilled. No more delay. This is it. The moment God's people have been waiting for has finally come. So this is giving us some very real ancient perspective on what's happening now in this moment in Revelation. And much, much, much more could be said about that. 
but let's keep going. Revelation chapter 10, verse 8. Then the voice that I had heard from, then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Let's pause there. Anyone know what this is a reference to? Ezekiel, nailed it. <laughs> Ezekiel chapter two, next slide please. See if you can, can pick up on the, the references. Ezekiel two verse nine. When I looked, behold, a hand was stretched out to me and behold, a scroll of a book was in it and he spread it before me and it had writing on the front and on the back That's important. And there were written on it words of lamentation and mourning and woe. Okay. Chapter three, verse one. And he said to me, son of man, he's speaking to the prophet Ezekiel, son of man, eat whatever you find here, eat this scroll and go. Speak to the house of Israel or prophesy to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth and he gave me the scroll to eat, and he said to me, Son of man, feed your belly with this scroll that I give you, and fill your stomach with it. Then I ate it, and it was in my mouth as sweet as honey. And he said to me, Son of man, go to the house of Israel, the Jewish people, and speak with my words to them. This is Ezekiel's edible scroll. It's written on the front and the back, words of lamentation and mourning and woe. So the words that God is commanding John, the visionary, to speak don't sound like super happy words, something to note. Number two, they're directly, directed specifically towards the house of Israel. Okay, so that's another very specific thing. Number three, the scroll tastes as sweet as honey. Obvious connection there. And number four, this is the second time we've seen this scroll in the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter five is where the scroll first appears. It's the scroll that was in the hand of the one seated on the throne, sealed with seven seals, And we're specifically told that you could see writing on the front and the back. Again, it's an Ezekiel 2 and 3 reference. Now, is it the same scroll? Or were we meant to think it's the same scroll? It would certainly seem like it's the same scroll. What's happening? Everything that's been happening for the last three chapters in the book of Revelation is still the result of the lamb, Revelation chapter five, taking and opening the seven sealed scroll from the hand of him who was seated on the throne. So we we have to remember, if you're just jumping in, forgive me, this is probably all incredibly confusing. 
listen to the podcast. But what we're reading about now, it's, it's the continuation of something that started like three chapters ago when the lamb, that is Jesus, who entered into the throne room of God, the only one worthy able to take the scroll, break the seven seals and open it, it's still, the seven seals broken, now we're still reading the effects of that opened scroll. Okay, so this isn't like, like a, a different vision, a different moment, this is the continuation of something we, that's a vision that's been unfolding. A scroll that's been being opened, seals that have been broken. And now we're, we're still in that moment. Now, John, our visionary, is being asked to take a similar scroll and not just open it, not just break its seals, but eat it to nourish himself and fill himself with its contents that he might prophesy, that he might embody God's words, that he might speak to many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. The seven seals are broken. The seventh seal kicks off the seventh trumpets, seven angels who blow the seven trumpets. Six trumpets are blown. We talked about this last week. And before the seventh trumpet is blown, there's an interlude. There's a commercial break. There's a pause before the end comes. That interlude is what we're reading about right now. What happened in the throne room of God, what the lamb did when he took the scroll and began to open it, that scroll, John himself is now being told to take a similar kind of scroll, not open it, but eat it, and to take the words and speak them, speak them to God's people himself. This is, this is a, we're getting deep. This is getting, this is like multi-layered revelation. It's as if, the scene that we read about in the throne room of heaven where the lamb himself took the scroll is now being played out on some kind of human level. John himself is being told, take the scroll, the edible scroll, Ezekiel's scroll, as it were, and you yourself speak my words to nations, languages, kings, peoples. During the interlude, John goes from mere observer to participant. Catch that. In the interlude moment, John himself is no longer just observing things taking place in heaven. He himself is being invited to participate in this moment. And it's as if what took place in heaven is now being played out on some kind of human level, are you with me? Now, we could probably have a good old debate about all of that. And come to Ecclesia, we totally can. But this is what I think is happening. And then he's given a measuring rod. Okay. Now, most of our Bibles uh, have a big old break right here in the, in the text. It's a new chapter, and there's even like a little title added. Sometimes that's super helpful. I don't think it's super helpful here because it's the, the flow of thought, the flow of the moment really shouldn't be broken into two pieces here. So all of this is happening and then he's given a measuring rod. He's given a tape measure. 
Let's go to the next slide. Revelation chapter 11, verse 1. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff. And I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar of those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out. For it is given over to the nations, the Gentiles, non-Jews. And they will trample the holy city for 42 months. It's an odd number. Verse 3, and I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. Okay. Here we go. The witnesses. The witnesses. There's two places in the entire book of Revelation where Christians just love to fight. It's the two witnesses and the thousand years. Okay, so here we go. Brace yourself if you're like, I have such a deep, strong opinion about this. I will get up and walk out of this room right now if you cross me. Just take a deep breath. Deep breath. Here we go. Let's start with the measuring rod. The measuring of the temple of God. This is preparation for judgment. Uh, in the Old Testament, repeatedly, several times, I won't bore you with all the references, when God says go and measure something, it's a way of saying something, prepare this nation, this people, or in this case, this temple, for judgment. Preparation for judgment, and in this case, he's saying don't forget about the outer courtyard, forget, it, or forget about the outer courtyard, where the non-Jews are, that's already been given over. I want you to focus specifically just on the temple itself because judgment always begins with God's own people. This is what Peter says, 1 Peter 4, 17. He explicitly says that judgment always begins with the family of God first. So God is saying, I'm about to judge. I'm about to deal I'm about to see justice done on earth and it's gonna begin with my own people. Specifically, Israel, the Jewish people, the ones who are given the stewardship of the temple. Okay? 1,260 days. What's that all about? 1,260 days. That's pretty obvious. 1,260 days. Anyone... Anyone like crunching numbers in here? What is that? 42, 30. Ken, have you studied this stuff? <laughs> You're like, just pick it up, pick it up. I know all of this stuff. Okay, 1,260 days. In Revelation, 1,260 days is the same as 42 months, which is the same as a time, times, and half a time. All referring to three and a half years. Three and a half is a symbol that probably refers to a time of trouble, then a time. So the trouble is increased, but the trouble is also cut short, i.e. half a time. It's a time of trouble that is intensified, but it's not forever. In other words, their prophecy, these two witnesses, what they're about to say is going to... It's going to be a prophecy of woe and repentance, lamentation 
and repentance during a time of intensified yet finite suffering. You guys with me? Okay. This is the power of the apocalyptic genre. These, these numbers and the, all of these symbols, they are so ridiculously loaded with theological meaning. Time, times, and half a time. A year, year plus, but limited in scope. Okay. This is the symbolic language of the apocalyptic genre. And again, God only knows um, what it really means, but this, this is what we think it means. Okay, my two witnesses. My two witnesses. Who are the two witnesses? Someone sent me um, a wonderful quote. Uh, this was two weeks ago. We were, we were kind of debating in our ecclesia about some of this stuff, and then we went from actually debating the details of Revelation to talking about, like, how can we actually, like, talk about this stuff and maybe even, like, debate this stuff in a way that's actually upbuilding? Like, in a way that people just don't end up leaving, like, frustrated and upset, like, oh, you guys are just stupid, and no, oh, you're a heretic, and, you know, and, and this is how church is split, I guess. And someone sent me this quote. It was so helpful. Can we go to the next slide, please? This is... Um, no one knows this guy, Owen Barfield. Anyone know Owen Barfield? He's only known by anyone because he was a contemporary of C.S. Lewis and apparently a colleague and a good friend when C.S. Lewis was writing and doing his thing in Oxford. And this was one of his colleagues, a buddy that he used to debate all the time. And if you read the biography of Owen Barfield, he says this about some of his conversations with his friend C.S. Lewis in an argument we always, both of us, were arguing for truth, not for victory, and arguing for truth, not for comfort. So when we talk about who are the two witnesses, we're digging into the details, and, we're, and it's maybe even get a bit heated because we are talking about God's word. This is super important. We're not arguing to simply win an argument. We're not arguing so that someone can walk away and be like, man, I... I won that one, victory. My theology is better than yours. I love God more than you do. That's not the point. We're looking for truth, not for victory, and we're arguing for truth, not for comfort, meaning that it's important that we don't shy away from like, engaging in like, serious pursuit of truth. Let's dig in, let's get into it, let's really unpack it. But not to win an argument, nor to avoid, I don't know, getting our feelings hurt, but in pursuit of truth. So who are the two witnesses? Who are the two witnesses? The book recommendation that I gave last week, um, Richly, pastor over in Beaverton, Matthew Lamb was telling me, yeah, I know him, he's, he's amazing. From what I can tell you, he's amazing. He argues in his book, Understanding Revelation, that the two witnesses, I've never heard this one before, the two witnesses were actually Peter and Paul, the apostles. And then, of course, he makes an argument for that. And he's, he's an incredible biblical scholar, absolutely uh, brilliant, um, not a heretic, from what I can tell takes God's word very, very seriously. And he has an argument for that. Totally new to me. Um, I've heard others argue that the two witnesses are like the church. And it's, it's kind of two aspects of the church. And we are the church. And, and I'm like, okay, yeah, I get that. And there's an argument for that. 
A lot of it has to do with how you date the book of Revelation. Actually, if you think that John had this vision pre-70 AD, pre the destruction of the second temple, then that's gonna radically affect how you interpret things like this. If you are of the opinion that actually John had this revelation maybe someplace around 90 AD, after the destruction of the second temple, the the conclusion would be like, well, what he's talking about doesn't have to do with the destruction of the temple and that cataclysmic event, but other things, probably things still yet to happen. And that's a totally valid view as well. So who are the two witnesses? I don't know. And nor do you. God does. And I suspect that if he wanted us to know for sure, he would have just given us their names. But there's something about the way he wrote this, the way John pinned the vision, there's something about the cryptic way that he communicated this that I suspect is meant to keep us in this place, this tension. And I would even go a step further and suggest that the actual true identity of the two witnesses in the grand scheme of everything else doesn't really matter. Amen. Amen. Some of you are like, amen or oh my. (laughs) I think what God is saying absolutely matters. But the identity of these two witnesses, we, we just don't know, which is why debate about it is totally valid. The pursuit of truth is super important, but we have to do it as brothers and sisters, bearing with one another, with patience, humility, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. I say, let's, let's engage. And if your engagement style uh, is more of a, an aggressive kind of debating style, fair enough, just don't be a jerk about it please. It's not helpful. Be gentle. Be respectful. Be passionate. But be humble and patient. So there you go. That's, that's what I will say about the two witnesses. So we don't know for sure who the two witnesses are, but there's a lot that we do know about the two witnesses. For example, number one. Um, oh, wait, we stopped. We have to keep going. Sorry. Let's keep reading. Okay, this is verse four. We're actually gonna finish the chapter. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands. Talking about the two witnesses, these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit, the abyss, will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically It's called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified, which we know is Jerusalem. Next slide, please. Verse nine. 
and for three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations, the people they were prophesying to, will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. Cold. Verse 10, and those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them and they stood up on their feet and great fear fell on all those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud and their enemies watched them. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. What do we know about the two witnesses? Number one, they are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord. Anyone got this reference? Ken? Zechariah chapter four. Someone said, you say it? Come on. Was someone about to start a slow clap? Okay. Love the condescending slow clap. Okay. This is Zechariah four. It's obviously Zechariah four. If you know the prophet Zechariah, when Zechariah was having virtually the same vision He asked the angel what it all meant, and the angel said, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel was one of the anointed builders who helped lay the foundation of the temple, Old Testament. He said, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. So the two, you would think, why, why wouldn't John just say it? Like, This is who it is. Instead, he uses these obscure prophetic references because he's trying to help us connect dots, like ancient dots, that God is doing something, he's fulfilling something that he started a long time ago. Okay, God has been working a plan, and he wants his people to remember that. This is not arbitrary. Not by might nor by power, but by My spirit, says the Lord of hosts, which means, number two, these two witnesses are Holy Spirit-empowered. Just like Zerubbabel was anointed by the Spirit to lay the foundation of the temple, these two witnesses, whoever they are, are empowered by the same Spirit to do what God has given them to do now. Number three, we know that if anyone tries to harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. Mm Mm-hmm. That's okay. Number four, we know that they have the power to one, shut the sky, that it won't rain. And number two, they have the power to turn waters into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague. In other words, they have some sort of power that parallels the prophet Elijah and Moses. Elijah was the prophet in 1 Kings who confronted Ahab the, the king of Israel at the time, not a good guy, not a good guy, and he confronts him and he says, I am going to pray and God is gonna shut up the sky, guess for how long? Three and a half years. The layers only continue. Three and a half years, Elijah says, I'm gonna pray and there's gonna be a drought, no rain. Of course, Moses was the one that God told, go 
to my enslaved people in Egypt and tell Pharaoh to let them go. Otherwise, there's going to be plagues, which is exactly what happened. So we're talking about two witnesses that are like Elijah and Moses. Number five, we know that the witnesses, um, I just said, there are like Elijah and, Eloz, uh, um, Elijah and Moses. And I would also suggest that as prototypes, the prophet Elijah and Moses represent the spirit of, the worshiper of truth and spirit. Okay, I would suggest that Elijah was the one operating in, quote unquote, the spirit. He was the one performing supernatural miracles. Moses did as well, but Moses is better known for the prophet who gave God's people the commandments. I think that these two prototypes are meant to symbolize spirit and truth. Food for thought. What else do we know? Two more things. We know what they do. They bear witness to the truth. And the result is that the beast from the abyss kills them and their dead bodies are left lying in the gutter while the world throws a party. They make like a holiday out of it. Okay, we know that for sure. And then finally, number seven, we know that three and a half days later, God gives them new life. He lifts them up in his presence. That's the cloud. Wherever you see cloud, think God, God's presence. And then brings them home to heaven. That's what we know about the two witnesses. Don't know their names. Not exactly sure about their identities, but we do know that they are, they do all of that. Um, question. How many people get consumed by the fire that pours out of these prophets' mouths? Did, if you grew up in church, do you ever remember like hearing about this and thinking like, these are like the coolest Bible characters ever. Like they got super powers. If you mess with them, they blow fire. <laughs> Forgive me if this was just my, my carnal nature coming out, but as a little boy reading that, I'm like, that's so dope. Like these guys are untouchable. Like they're gonna speak God's word and they're gonna like, they're gonna just, just and if anyone tries to step to them, they're like, <laughs> But what actually happens? We're told that they, they say what God commanded them to say. They speak the truth about who God is and what he's done in Jesus. And then they die. This beast comes up out of the abyss and consumes them, kills them, and leaves their bodies lying in the streets for three and a half days. No one dies via mouth fire. That's significant. That is significant, because you, you would think that, you know, if, if it did happen, that would su- certainly be included. So they have the power to breathe fire, but apparently no one dies. Or maybe no one confronted them. Maybe no one tried to harm them. But no one dies. 
Not that we're told. Okay. If we, like John, this Christian receiving this revelation, this Christian who's been commanded to eat the edible scroll, embody these words, and then share them with the world, if we're to get anything from him, if he's meant to be like some kind of example for us, if we are living in an interlude now, the end has not come. And by the way, it's, it's interesting that frequently in the book of Revelation, we're told that there is no more delay. The end has come. The thing is about to happen, which is why some argue that, in fact, what he is talking about is the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. Again, massive, massive debate. Okay? But I would suggest that we are living in interlude time now. We are waiting the return of Jesus. We are waiting for the end to come. It has not, and so we're living in this in-between time. This is our interlude the final trumpet has not been blown Jesus has not come back judgment is still to come we are living in an interlude moment like John he's told in that interlude moment between trumpets six and seven take the scroll eat it it's going to be sweet going in it's going to make you sick to the stomach but I want you to go and proclaim my words embody and proclaim my words the truth bear witness to the truth to the world in this in-between time because this is our in-between time so what is it whoever the witnesses might be could be us someone argue that but whoever they are, how are we meant to glean something from John or these witnesses for our interlude time? Number one, we are invited, we are commanded to bear witness to the world about who God is and what he's done. This has always been our commission as the people of God. Go. Go. That's what he says to John. Go. Tell the world. Tell them your story. Tell them about how good I am. Tell, tell them that there will be justice. Amen or oh my. Judgment is coming. But God doesn't desire that anyone should perish. So go tell the world. That the king is good and he's come to rescue us. Tell the world your story. Tell the world God's story. Can I share this with you guys? I'm going to run out of time. I found an old letter. We've been just clearing out our church building down the road on Mason Street. And it's been really, really cool. Some of the stuff that we have found there. We found an open, an unopened bottle of tomato sauce yesterday, I'm told. It was like, what, 100 years old or something? Something. Whatever. It had expired. So you know it's like properly old. I found this. I was rummaging around up in the attic, up at the bell tower. And I found a big old box of letters. And I found, I just pulled one out. 
I won't read the whole thing to you, obviously, but I want to read a bit of it. This was written in 1942. And you can tell it's like hand-typed, right? It's a three-point letter. Number one, we, are, we face continuing financial obligations. We must keep faith with our missionaries. Number two, we are committed to continuing cooperation with the younger churches. We must keep faith with our colleagues of the younger churches. And number three, this is the one I'll read. They say, we are committing to an ongoing spiritual enterprise, the world church. And not like the organization, like the church around the world, pre-internet. They say, worldwide Christian fellowship is a living reality today. 1942, cruelty cannot crush it. War cannot destroy it. World War II was happening right about this time. Darkness cannot conquer its light. We are enlisting 150 new missionaries to fill depleted ranks. We are even now sending some men on furlough back to their fields. We are preparing for the new day in China. The new day in India is upon us. The Philippines will be free and will call on us for help to rebuild. New personnel, especially medical, is sorely needed in Africa. Our crowded schools, clinics, and hospital in Turkey urgently call for new workers and funds. The construction work in Bulgaria and Greece must be undertaken at the earliest possible moment. Our Mexico mission calls for justifiable expansion immediately. We must keep faith with our Lord and his vision of the kingdom of God on earth. How cool is that? I've talked a lot about this little building that God has blessed us with. We bought it, we're renovating it. We are on this incredible, wonderful, nerve-wracking adventure as a church family. And I've talked about, guys, there's, this is like a legacy. We're not just taking over some church building. We are grabbing the baton. There's a little black congregation, historically black congregation, that has kept that, the, the doors open on that church for like 30 years. And we're not just pushing them out of the way because, they, hey, we need a building and we're here now. We are taking the baton. Once upon a time, that church was packed full of people in this community, mostly German-speaking immigrants. And then things changed, and then things changed again. But God was doing something. This little church in Portland had a vision to see the gospel go around the world and back. They had a vision to build hospitals in Bulgaria, to send missionaries in a country that was being torn apart by civil war, the Philippines. They were dreaming about China before Christianity Today ever wrote a single article about the underground revolution happening in the house church movement in China. This was a little church who was dreaming God's big dreams to see the gospel go around the world and back and around again. This is what we're a part of. This is what God is doing. This is what God has always been doing. And we are being invited not just to observe, but to participate in it. This is our interlude. 
You want to get involved? Do you feel excited about getting involved? Do you feel convicted about not being involved? Do you want to change that? Do you want to take another step? Do you want to commit more? Do you want to give more? Do you want to go more? Do you want to be bold more? Because we have an opportunity to participate in something that God started uh, thousands of years ago. About 20, 60 some odd years ago. 80, that would be 80 years ago in Portland. Guys, this is our legacy. This is what we are being invited to be a part of. We need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. You guys know we're a uh, charismatic church. (laughs) I came out of the charismatic, I'm not going to say that. Yeah, we're a charismatic church. We believe in the power of the Holy Spirit. We believe that God is still doing miraculous things and practical things. He's guiding us. He's working through us. He's healing us. He's saving people. He's transforming hearts. He's distributing gifts of the Spirit as needed so that the body might be strengthened and built up. We are a church that desires to be filled and filled and filled again with the Holy Spirit. We don't want to leave Jerusalem without him. Before we go, we must be filled with the Spirit of God like the anointed witnesses. We're given power to be God's witnesses. And you say, well, what about the, what about the fire coming out of the mouth? Is that for real? You know what I would say about that? I am, I am weirdly comfortable with embracing the supernatural aspects of the Bible. You kind of have to, honestly. If, if you don't believe that God can raise people from the dead, then you don't believe that Jesus came back from the dead, which means you're just, I, I don't know what you're doing here. Maybe you're curious. But you're not a Christian if you don't believe like that. It's like the most fundamental, basic thing. So we believe, I certainly believe, that God is he's still in the business of doing supernatural things. I even believe that on the day of Pentecost, when we're told that, like, fire, like, tongues of flame rested on the heads of the apostles it's written in a way that seems like this this is a literal event like people were looking and freaking out at what they saw and heard did these guys actually spit fire out of their could they have i would say yes in that i don't have a problem with god doing crazy supernatural things i would say no in this case because i don't think it reads that way. I mean, the, the, the book is just so packed full of apocalyptic symbolism that I would be inclined to say, well, no, I think, I don't think this is meant to be read like Acts 1 and 2. I think this is more, this is, this is a different genre, so we need to read it as such. That's where I stand. For sure, though, they were given power by the Holy Spirit to speak God's words. And what did they do with that power? They didn't kill people. They didn't blast people with their flame breath. You know, I was on the uh, campus with Lily, our campus missionary, 
this week, WSU in Vancouver, and we were, uh, we were doing evangelism. We, we do this thing. We walk around and we do spiritual surveys. And students, for the most part, are totally into it. And it's just like a conversation starter. It usually starts out very awkward, as you could imagine. And then it gets really, really cool. Because almost immediately, students realize, like, hey, we're not trying to, like, accost you with our Bibles. We just, we're literally just wanting to, like, have conversations and be respectful and give you an opportunity to actually think about, like, what do you believe? Where do you stand? And um, so we do that. We're doing it this week. And uh, I've... I've been doing it for about 20 years now, literally, that, going on university campuses. I've done it all over the world. I've done it on multiple continents from Australia to Europe to here. And so I've been doing it a while. I've gotten really good at it. And I don't mean to sound arrogant, but there's, there's really nothing that a student can say to me that I've not heard, that I've not thought about, that I've not read books on. And for the most part, when we do this on campus, I could easily run circles around these like 18, 19, 20-year-olds. And you're, some of you are thinking like, dude, you check the ego, bro. <laughs> I'm just saying, I'm old, all right? I've read some books. <laughs> I could run circles around these students. And, and I have, and guess what? It's never been super helpful. I, could, I can like dominate you with my knowledge. I could just completely talk over you and break you down. Just fire. <laughs> you ah, like. <laughs> yeah. Which is what the world needs more of, right? No. We're given the power of the Spirit not to slay our foes, but that we might lay down our lives like our lion king, like the lamb. Gosh, we have to end. Can we stand together, please? You're now listening to Grace City Portland.